Take your Bible this morning, the book of Hebrews, be in chapter number one. So glad you're in church this morning. I hope that this message will be exactly what you need. I believe that Jesus is the answer to every problem of life. Uh, Some people may ask, Brother Andrew, why do you preach on Jesus so much on Sunday morning? I can't find a better topic to preach on. I think Jesus is the answer to every problem of life. Hebrews chapter 1 is one of my favorite chapters in all the Word of God. remember reading it with my wife at uh, breakfast while we were in college. And we were just having a time of devotion together. And we were just so moved by this particular chapter... I was so thankful for tears in her eyes when she looked up from the passage. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. Verse number 1 of the book of Hebrews, chapter number 1, the Bible says God... See, like Genesis, somewhat just gets right into the meat and potatoes of it all. It doesn't really give a defense for God. God doesn't need to defend Himself. God is the uncaused cause of the worlds. He is the proof that does not need proving. That's why the writer of Hebrews just starts so bluntly, God. That's how it all began. That's how it's all going to end. It's an appropriate way to begin this chapter. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory, and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, Set down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Being made so much better than the angels. As he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time. That will be a recurring statement throughout this chapter. The comparison of Jesus to the angels. The ultimate goal of the writer of Hebrews is to say that there really is no comparison at all. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire? But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness, and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou... Lord, 
In the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? When you look at the world through the eyes of a father, he sees things quite differently than you may. I remember when my daughter Caitlin was born. It was a transformative day in my life. I remember the pride. And I always told myself I would never be that gushy, over-the-top, happy kind of dad. I would just go with the flow. But I tell you, on that day, I was gushing. I was so excited to see my daughter come into this world. And I, I remember, even at the moment, thinking, I'm one of those dads. I tried not to be, but I was one of those dads who thought that this was the best child that had ever been born. I remember as we were there in the delivery room, there was a whole crowd gathered around to uh, uh, see everything that was going on. In fact, they had one little girl who was a student at TCU. She was in the nursing program. And part of their uh, course and, and part of the things that she needed to do to graduate was to be in a delivery room and witness a delivery. So this little girl, probably wet behind the ears, 19 years old, trying to figure out how to be a nurse, she's standing over in the corner as everything in that delivery room is going on. And she looked just as shocked as I did. And uh, I remember just being so proud. I, I, I thought I was so impressed with my wife. I was impressed with the doctor because the doctor had to like take my kid and like the umbilical cord was wrapped around. So she did this whole fumble ruski thing and put her under her shoulder. And I mean, it was just really impressive. And all this is to say, I remember looking at that little girl from TCU and I told her, I'm sorry, this was the one you had to witness she had a bit of a puzzled look on her face and she didn't quite fully understand what I meant because really the delivery had gone off without a hitch. It was seamless. In fact, the doctor was quite uh, complimentary of everything that happened. I said, doctor, I did my part. Thank you. I did all that I could. I said, I'm sorry this was the delivery you had to witness for your first. And she said, well, what do you mean? It, it, went, it was great. It was perfect. I said, well, I'm just sorry that you had to begin as good as it got because everything from now on is downhill. It'll never be as good as this one was. Looking through the eyes of a father, things look quite remarkable, especially when it comes to their children. I remember reading through Scripture, and there are many confessions about the Lord Jesus that are quite remarkable. In fact, we studied one just a few weeks ago as Martha, after being confronted with a statement by Jesus that I am the resurrection and the life, he asked her, do you believe what I'm saying? And her words, with all the faith that she could muster, she said, yes, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Peter, on two different occasions, had a confession 
The first one that he had was uh, many of the disciples were leaving the Lord. They didn't want to follow this type of discipleship Christianity, this Christianity that claims that you have to pick up your cross to follow Christ. They, They didn't want any of that. And so many of them were departing and Jesus looked at the disciples and says, Oh, will you guys now go away as well? And Peter said to the Lord, Where shall we go? Thou hast the words of life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thomas, by no means a pillar of the great faith in the Bible, but I'm just telling you, when he finally did get to reach his hands into the scars of Jesus and see the resurrected Lord, when Jesus confronted him, his statement and confession was true when he looked Jesus in the face and said, My Lord and my God. There are many great confessions in the Bible about Jesus. In fact, there's a confession that wasn't from His disciples, but was instead from demons. As Jesus now lands on the shores of Gadara, there comes a man that meets Him out of the tomb, and this man is just an absolute menace to society. He cuts himself. He lives in the tombs. Could you imagine planning a funeral, knowing that you have to go deal with the naked man that lives there? And this would be a pretty rough deal. My dad preached a sermon long, long ago. The title of it was, A New Dude in a Rude Mood. And, and that was pretty appropriate. But could you imagine as this maniac who no man could bind him, and when they'd tie him up with fetters, he would just break the bands because he was possessed by demons. When Jesus lands there on the shores of Gadara, he is met by this man, and the demons that influence this man calls him to say, What have I to do with thee, thou Son of God Most High? I beseech thee, torment me not. You see, not only the disciples of Jesus claim that Jesus is the Son of God, the demons as well claim that Jesus is the Son of God. And there are many confessions throughout the Word of God, but perhaps... The great, the greatest and the most profound is the one that we study this morning. For today we do not look to Jesus' followers to tell us who He is. Nor do we look at the other side of the uh, supernatural arena to tell us who He is. We look to the Father. God the Father, and through His eyes He tells us this morning exactly who Jesus is. I want you to notice three remarkable statements made by the Father about Jesus Christ. Number one, there is a claim of familial connection. Here's what the Father calls Jesus, Son. Notice in verse number five, the Bible says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son. God the Father never hesitated to call Jesus the Son. In fact, it was at His baptism, when Jesus was then uh, baptized by John the Baptist, there was a... Uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and there was heard there on that day a voice ringing from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Isn't it interesting that it took Jesus 30 years to hear that statement, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and it just happened to be after His baptism. See, the Father said, this is my Son. 
On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter was so moved by everything that was going on, he said, oh, it's just good for us to be here. Let us build a tabernacle to Moses and Elijah. It's just, it's just so good for us to be here. And the Father corrected Peter when he said, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. Meaning, we don't need to hear from Moses and we don't need Elijah. If you have Jesus, you have it all. The Father never hesitated to call Jesus His Son. And verse 5 introduces us to really one of the main themes of Hebrews chapter 1 when it says, For unto which of the angels hath He said... The idea here is that within the early church, there had entered into the church a superstition to worship angels. Both the church at Colossae and the church of Galatia are uh, encouraged not to worship angels. In fact, Colossians chapter 2 verse 18 says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a, a, voluntarily, a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, meaning you, you don't worship angels. In fact, when anybody worships angels, you know what they do? They say, don't worship me. I am your fellow servant. I'm just like you are. Worship God. So this whole chapter really introduces us to the concept, which is this. Jesus is supreme. That's why in verse number 1 it talks about God who at sundry times in diverse manners hath spoken to us by the prophets. Oh, these Hebrew believers really viewed these prophets in high esteem. And right from the beginning the writer of Hebrews says, Hey look, the prophets are good, but they're not Jesus. He goes on and says, I know within the church this false doctrine of worshiping angels is starting to take hold. Listen to me, none of the angels have been called the Son Jesus is supreme in every way. There's two very interesting terms that we see here in verse number 5. The Bible says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That word begotten is used in probably the most famous verse in all the Bible, in John chapter 3 verse 16 where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. This verse taken from Hebrews here in verse number 5 is actually a phrase borrowed from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7. It's an exact quote, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Unless there be any confusion as to what the word begotten means, it means of, the, of a unique nature. Essentially, if we were to borrow an English term or an English phrase, it would be this, one of a kind. I have begotten thee. I have made thee unique as set apart from everything else. Well, what nature is this that's so unique? Well, verse number 3 tells us, Jesus, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is a carbon copy of the Father. And this is precisely what Jesus claimed. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He went so far when Philip was asking him to see the Father. You know what Jesus told him? He said, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. 
The term begotten speaks of Jesus' unique nature, unique in the sense that it perfectly identifies us with the Father. Not only this term begotten, but there's also another term that I think we ought to discuss this morning. Verse number 6, And again, when He bringeth in the first begotten into the world. This word, first begotten, is also in other places translated firstborn. They are one and the same firstborn. And this does not mean in the sense that Jesus was born first or that He was created in the beginning first. Because Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 foretells of a child that would be born in Bethlehem's manger and this child's name would be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, listen, the Everlasting Father. So whoever was born in Bethlehem would have the name the Everlasting Father. Meaning, He didn't at one time begin to exist. That one that was born in Bethlehem's manger, the one who Isaiah foretold about, would be the Everlasting Father. Jesus has no beginning and He has no end. He is eternal God. So don't let this idea of the firstborn or first begotten trip you up. In the Bible, there are two ways that the idea of firstborn relates to people. First, and probably the most obvious, it is this. I have a daughter, and she is my oldest child. She is what I would call my firstborn. And that happens through the course of Scripture. But there is another way in which it relates to people. And that is people that receive the privilege of being firstborn and therefore the inheritance and benefits that accompany it without actually being born at all or born in that order. In David's case, in Psalm 89 and verse 27, King David is called firstborn. Now to any Bible student this morning that spent any time in Sunday school class, you realize that King David was not the firstborn of his own family. King David was not the secondborn of his family or the thirdborn of his family, or the fourth, or the fifth, or the sixth, or the seventh. King David was the youngest child of eight sons of Jesse. So how in the world is he called the firstborn? Also Manasseh is called the firstborn being the second child. How is that? Because firstborn does not solely relate to the order of birth. To understand this concept even further, in Jewish religion... Rabbis have called Yahweh, that is an Old Testament name for God the Father, they called Yahweh the firstborn of creation. That does not mean that God was born, it means that He has made everything and He will inherit everything. Essentially, that's what it's saying here. Verse number 2 tells us this, look in verse number 2 of Hebrews chapter 1 hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, listen, this is very important, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. This privilege of firstborn is often tied to the concept of creation and inheritance. For instance, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And if you only read that verse, you might think, well, Jesus was born first. 
No, the very next verse says this, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, and for Him were all those things created. What is Colossians saying? It's saying precisely the same thing Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 is, that Jesus created it all and will inherit it all. So in this case, firstborn relates to the inheritance that Jesus gets as the creator and inheritor being the firstborn of all creation. Jesus Christ is the firstborn and He is begotten of the Father. Both of these titles relate to Him being the Son of God. If you just study the Gospels alone, it is quite clear that when people heard Jesus teach that He was the Son of God, He was claiming equality with God, not subordination. They sought to stone Him and kill Him because He claimed to be equal with God. And that's why the Bible says, Jesus Christ, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, because it wasn't. He was God in the flesh. What a privilege to be called the Son of God. That's what makes this concept more remarkable. Is that you and I, being lost sinners being alienated from God, being what the book of Ephesians called children of wrath, that you and I could have a relationship with God that put us in the position of being His Son. See, the Bible says, as many as received Him, to them gave He power to be called the sons of God. What a remarkable thought that we too, like Jesus, can be a child of God. That's why 1 John verse, chapter 3, verse 1 puts it like this, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. I don't want you to mistake this at all. When the Bible calls us the sons of God, it is not saying that we are equal to Jesus in any sense. What it's actually saying is God sent His Son so that He might make us sons. Through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we have the privilege and the right through faith to lay claim on God's promise that we can be called the sons of God. God accomplished this through Jesus. So here's the question this morning. It's very important. If you get nothing else from the sermon, get this. Are you His son? Are you a child of God? The Bible says that we can if we will believe on His name. Galatians chapter 4, the Bible says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So the important question for you this morning is, are you a son? Because when you're a son, it means you have intimacy with God. God is a personal God. You know, in Greek mythology, uh, they said of their gods, they, they had a word to describe their gods, and it's the word that we get our English word apathetic from. Meaning that their gods didn't care or concern themselves with the everyday lives of their subjects. That is not our God at all. When you become a son, you become a child of God that has God on the direct line at any time. Here's what's pretty remarkable. Many of you might know my dad. Many of you may be friends with my dad. And some of you have maybe been friends with my dad much longer than I have. 
But if you were to go through my dad's phone, I would guess that my name is called more often than yours. Son, I need you to come over here and help me fix something. No. <laughs> I would guess, now there may be a few in here, but you may have made the favorites list, you know, the, the ones that uh, automatically get called, but, but I know I'm on there. Why? Because being a son allows you a privilege of intimacy with the Father. At any time, in any moment of any day, I can walk through my back fence there, through that muddy pathway, and I can go over and sit on a couch while Dad sits in his recliner, and we can just sit there and be together. Why? Because I'm his son. I don't even have to knock because I'm his son. Being a son gives you intimacy with God, but it also gives you inheritance with God. The Bible calls us joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Meaning, Jesus created it all, and it will be given all to Him. He will inherit it all. And He has given you the privilege of an inheritance with Christ. The Bible puts it like this in 1 Peter, that we have been born again to a lively hope, and it says this, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. You have an inheritance. One day, my dad's going to leave this earth. He's going to graduate. He's going to meet up with all them good coon dogs he sent on ahead. When he does, he will leave an inheritance. You know how much I worked for that inheritance? Zip. Not I didn't do a thing for it. Throughout the course of his life, he earned all of his wealth, all of his substantial wealth. He earned it all. And one day will bequeath it or give it to, hopefully more of it to me than Mandy. But you see, <laughs> amen. I'll take them when I can get them, folks. I'll take them when I can get them. You see, I didn't work at all for my father's inheritance. There's nothing I could have done to earn it. I get the inheritance because I'm a son. The reason that we inherit a home in heaven is not because we earned it. And there is a tremendous amount of people that have been deceived by the devil that somehow think that if they can live a good life or be a good person, they can inherit, it, uh, they can inherit some kind of good favor of God. Listen to me. We are all sinners that have all gone out of the way. We have all become unprofitable for God. We do not seek after Him. We run away from Him. And in God's grace and in His mercy and in His loving favor, He said, if you will receive My Son, you will become a son. The Bible says, I hath not seen nor ear hath heard the things which God hath prepared for His people. I'm so excited one day to receive an inheritance, but not one that I have earned. The Father speaks of a familial connection with Jesus. He is my Son. I want you to notice, secondly, a claim of sovereign control. Verse number 8, what is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible but unto the Son He saith. Now it's very important you understand who these pronouns relate to. The Son is obviously the one being spoken about, but who is the He there? It is God the Father. The Logos. In the Old Testament, it's the Yahweh. 
who is this speaking? It is God the Father speaking about Jesus Christ. And He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Not only do I call Jesus God this morning, the Father in heaven calls Jesus God. Because Jesus has sovereign control. He is eternally coexistent and co-equal with the Father in heaven. Again, as verse number 5 was a quotation from Psalms, so too we find that verse number 8 is a quotation from Psalms, taken from Psalm 45 and verse 6, where it's almost an identical quotation. And here God the Father calls Jesus the Theos, the proper Greek name for God. It's the same word that is used in John chapter 1 when the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, the Theos, and the Logos, the Word, was God, Theos. Jesus Christ is not only the Word of God, but He is very God Himself. Jesus is in sovereign control. That's why in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, the Bible says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Who is this one that is to be born in Bethlehem's manger? Who is this one that is to come and is sent from God? Oh, he's Emmanuel. Well, what in the world does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. Jesus, throughout the Scriptures, is called not only the Son of God, but God Himself. And here, verse number 8 speaks of this unique name and this unique title and speaks of two aspects of it. Notice verse number 8. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. He mentions an eternal throne. An eternal throne. See, the Bible says of this one that would be born in Bethlehem's manger, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 33, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Forever. <laughs> Woo! He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. You know what the Bible says about Jesus Christ in the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1? The Bible says that Jesus claims to be the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He says, I am He that is, which was, and which is to come. Jesus Christ sits on an eternal throne. And when the devil hung Him on the cross at Calvary, He said, oh, I got Him. But my friend, He sits on an eternal throne. He didn't die that day uh, on Golgotha's hill, but He rose again three days later. The devil couldn't hold Him. The grave couldn't keep Him. Death couldn't say, hey, Jesus, you've got to stay down. Jesus Christ is alive forevermore. And this too is proof that He is God Himself. The Bible speaks not only of an eternal throne, but it speaks in verse number 8 of a righteous scepter. Notice, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. The scepter, obviously, most of us recognize is a sort of staff or a rod that kings would hold Oftentimes when they were implementing or exercising their authority, this rod was symbolic of their kingly authority. 
And in this case, it's interesting that the Bible says that this scepter is one of righteousness. Now this may surprise you, but Jesus loves righteousness. Notice what the very next verse says in verse number 9. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Now, many want to characterize Jesus' reign as being one of love. And don't get me wrong, God is love. If it were not for God, we would not know what real love was. God sending His Son in the form of of sinful flesh to die on the cross for us. Oh, greater love hath no man than this, than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. We see God loves us dearly. And many people want to characterize Jesus' reign as being one of love. That is not what Hebrews chapter 1 says. It is a reign characterized by righteousness. In fact, love is used, but he says, I love righteousness. What an interesting concept. In the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, you know what Jesus says? Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. God loves righteousness, and God's people ought to love righteousness. Isn't it interesting that Jesus calls us sheep? Did you know that hogs do not have sweat glands? And it is this an inability for them to secrete their heat through their skin that drives them to mud. That's why hogs are often seen in, in, uh, in, in swampy type of pens and they find out muddy areas and dirty areas. It's in their nature and by design, they seek to be dirty animals. But what's interesting is, sheep are not inherently clean animals. Now don't, don't miss what I'm saying here. Sheep secrete through their skin an oil that makes everything stick to their wool. They lie down in grass, it sticks. They lie down in dirt, it sticks. More than that, sheep are scared of water. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I researched it on FarmersOnly.com. No, that's a dating website, I think. I think that's a dating website. But no, legitimately, legitimately, I looked this up. Sheep are scared of running water. Is that, and that's why in Psalm 23... The Bible says, He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me by still waters. Why do they have to be still? Because we're sheep. If sheep get caught in in moving water, their wool would weigh them down and it would carry them off. They would not be able to swim under the weight of their own coat. So sheep can't bathe. And more than that, They are not animals that lick themselves as others do. Some of this has to do with their coats are so fluffy and they're like little puffballs walking around. But their skeletal structure is not designed to be particularly uh, flexible. So sheep are really in this great dilemma. They're animals 
that have to stay away from dirty places because anything that gets around them that's dirty is going to stick to them. And they can't get to places that clean themselves. The sheep are wholly dependent upon the shepherd to clean them. That's why when the shepherds often shear their sheep, they then take their coats and they purge it with hyssop and they cleanse it with all sorts of different products because they have to clean the wool. The sheep could not do it himself. What I am not, don't get me wrong, I am not teaching this morning a doctrine of some sort of sinless perfection where Christians can, by willpower and a relationship with God, never do anything wrong. But what I am saying is, by nature, God's sheep seek to be clean. We want to be clean. We don't want to live in dirty places and we don't want to be like the pigs of this world. We want to be clean, but we can't do it ourselves. So what do we do? We come to the Good Shepherd and we lay our sins before Him and say, Dear God, we know that we're sinners and we're the sheep of Your pasture and we need to be cleansed. And that's why the Bible says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be made clean. Why does it say that? Because our Good Shepherd cleanses the sheep of His pasture. But sheep ought to love righteousness. Because our shepherd loves righteousness. Jesus' rule is one of righteousness. We find there's a, a great claim made, and that is a familial connection. My son. There's a great claim made of, of sovereign control. Thy throne, O God. I want you to see thirdly as we close. There's a claim of ultimate conquest. Skip down now to verse number 13. Verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 1 says, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. As with the other two statements, this is a quotation taken from Psalms. This particular psalm is Psalm 110 and verse 1, where it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Being on the right hand of a king is a place of esteem and high authority. That's what Jesus here is pictured as, is being one seated in a position of authority. But what's more unique about this is the comparison between verse 13 and verse 14. Jesus, in verse 13, is pictured as sitting on God's right hand. Verse 14 These angels that have been constantly compared to, I think, seven different times they're compared to in Hebrews chapter 1 alone. The Bible says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Verse 14 says, Don't all the angels just do the will of God? Don't they just serve whatever He wants them to do? In heaven, there's some that worship God. There's some that hover above His throne and cry, Holy, holy, holy. Uh, there's angels that are messengers. There, there's angels, but they all have a job and they all have a task. And the, the, the picture in heaven is one of great busyness, of angels doing what God wants them to do. But in verse 13, the Bible says that Jesus is seated by the majesty of God. When a sovereign king walks into a room, all others stand. 
So why is Jesus seated? Because He is sovereign Himself. All others stand in God's presence, or maybe they bow in God's presence. Jesus sits in His presence. Jesus is not a servant like the angels. He is sovereign. That's why Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him, and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth, the things that are under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. And one day, all those that oppose God in this day and age will end up bowing to Jesus Christ as God in that day. There may be teachers in universities teaching that God did not create the earth. Listen to me, on that day, they will bow to the one that created it all. There may be heathens that today live their life according to whatever whims they may have. And they say, well, it's my life to live and I can live it however I want. But on that day, they will answer to a righteous judge who will judge them according to their works. You can deny it. You can hate it. You can uh, go against it all you want. But there will come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. From God the Father's perspective, Jesus is His Son. Jesus is God, and Jesus will ultimately conquer in the end. Now here's what we've seen so far. We've seen what God the Father thinks about Jesus. Here's the question I have for you today. What does the Father think of you? The Bible says that all things are naked and open before Him with whom we have to do. Meaning God the Father sees everything. In fact, He goes a step farther and the Bible actually says this, there is nothing that is done in secret that will not one day be openly manifested before God. Every idle word that we speak will be brought out and brought to light before God. And the Bible really, it's it's actually a profound book, but a very simple book, because the Bible really breaks people down into one of two categories. Our world operates in division. I mean, it wants to divide us all against each other. It wants to put us in economic classes and political parties. And it wants to put us in educationals. I mean, whether you have a GED, a high school diploma, whether you have a a bachelor's degree, an associate's degree, a master's degree, a doctor's degree. Man, we we got more degrees than a thermometer, I'm telling you. The, The world wants to put us in all sorts of classes. And races, oh, we got black, and we've got white, and we've got uh, Asian, we've got Indians, I mean, we've got everybody. And the world wants to divide us. The Bible puts us into one of two categories. It's not Jew or Gentile. It is not male or female. All of these things are made the same under Jesus Christ. Who are the two classes? Listen, sinners and sons. The saved and the unsaved. You see, the Bible says we're all sinners. 
we have all together become unprofitable. Our lives do fade as a leaf of grass. What is man's life? It is but a vapor that appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away. When that day comes when you will stand before God, and you will have to give account for yourself, you will stand in one of two lines. You either stand with the sinners who have not been forgiven of their sins, or you will stand with those of us who are sinners and have been forgiven of our sins. I did not earn sonship. God freely gave it because He's a good and loving God. And this morning, it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been, what political class you belong to, what your yearly income is, you belong in one of those two lines, sinners or sons. And the Father in heaven today and the Son in heaven today desire nothing more for you than that you would skip lines from sinners to His Son. And to as many as received Him, to them gave He power to be called the sons of God.